Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we continue our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Yesterday morning, I was uh, throwing a pity party for myself, which, uh, as many of you know, the good part about a pity party is everybody that you invite show up because it's just you. The bad part is it doesn't really accomplish anything. On Friday, uh, this last week, I got my brace off my wrist, which basically the doctor said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said, don't, uh, don't really hip- lift anything heavy. You know, don't, uh, don't do this, don't do that. And can I golf? No, you can't golf. And I said, but it still hurts. And he goes, yeah, it's the way it is. And so, okay. So trying to still kind of get things done with the wrist. And so on Friday... Uh, I went to, uh, I was cutting an apple for myself, and usually with the brace, my wife was doing that. So this was my first time going solo uh, in seven weeks, and um, my wrist still isn't strong enough, so when I pressed down on the apple, I just didn't have, and it slipped off and cut the tips of my finger. Brand new, brand new knife, brand new, expensive knife. And uh, so now on Saturday, I am laying, sitting in my chair. My wrist hurts. I, my fingers, if I touch anything, will start bleeding again and throbbing. Probably should have gone to the doctor, but I'm a man, so we don't do those things. And so I'm sitting there looking out the window in the sunshine, and my phone dings. And I pick up my phone, and it says, traffic is light for the Forest Grove Love, Inc. golf tournaments. Leave now. Even my phone taking little shots at me. You can't play. <laughs> so um, I didn't have the best uh, attitude, as was pointed out throughout the day by my mom, my wife, and my oldest daughter at one point in time or another. And I was thinking about how, and many of you are struggling with, with so many different physical ailments and different things, and, and I get that, but isn't it amazing how our culture is just obsessed with how we're doing physically. Um, boy, uh, we, I, I, I don't think I'm any different. We don't like it when we're limited in the things that we're used to doing. I mean, really, my logic was, if I wasn't injured, then I could do what I want to do, which was golf, and forget all the other things I probably could have done other than sit in my chair and watch golf, which didn't really help any. <laughs> and so there's, there's a point where we're, we are as a culture obsessed with our looks, with our bodies, with our aches and pains. And when we look at 1 Thessalonians and all the things the church was going through, much affliction, which they faced with great joy, the affliction that they were going through was so much greater than so many of the things that we go through, and it helps us kind of put into perspective. And so with all the affliction that's going on in the church, and Paul has been addressing that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, into chapter 3, and then at the end of chapter 3, in all the things that Paul is talking about, he breaks into prayer. And so this is what Paul prays. We've been reading it at the end of our services uh, as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians many times. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. 
Remember Paul said it's his desire to come back to Thessalonica, but Satan had hindered him. He said, may, may the, our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that we may establish your, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And I just thought it was interesting that in all the things that Paul has talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3 about affliction, chapter 1, verse 6, much affliction. Uh, he actually uses uh, uh, great affliction again in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 3 was about the affliction that was separating them. And when Paul breaks into prayer, he doesn't say anything about the affliction. He doesn't ask that God would release them from the affliction or save them from the affliction or anything like that. And so this morning, we want to look at what Paul's prayer teaches us about prayer, or what we would focus on, and specifically what it teaches us about the nature of God and the purpose of God. Now, before we jump into that, um, I, I want to kind of illustrate a way that we should look at Scripture when we're applying it to ourselves. And I'll do this with a story. I was, uh, I'm part of our Association of Baptist Churches uh, I've been asked to be part of an ordination council. It's, it's a common practice where pastors who have been ordained go and help other pastors who are seeking ordination. And the way that we do that is by making their life miserable. And uh, they have to write this huge doctrinal statement, and then they have to defend it, and we get to ask them whatever questions we want and just really grill them. And back in the day when I did it, it was just a one-day torture but in, in our love for other people, we've split it up now into four or five days. And really, it's a, it's a lot more fun. And um, so I was a part of this, uh, it was last week, and uh, we were in this process, and it, the doctrinal statement was on angiology, okay? Not a super exciting thing. And so one of the guys on the thing says, okay, you've described your theology of angiology. He says, now, how does that function? And the pastor said, uh, what? And he says, well, what is what you believe about angels? How does that function in your life? And he started to sweat a little bit. And it's so fun to be in the chair. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, tell us about it. How does that function? <laughs> I don't know. And what he pointed out was, look, all of our theology should move us to a way that we live and function. We call it our orthopraxy, our orthodoxy, our orthopraxy, and that should lead to devotion, how we worship God. And so we eventually let him off the hook and, and moved on. But um, this morning, as we look at this passage, we, we, we recognize there's things that we believe, but how does that really impact how we function? And how does that impact how we worship God? For instance, we talk about, and we have talked a lot about the fact that God forgave us of great sin and separation. Therefore, we should forgive others. That's the function. And our devotion is that we should be thankful that God forgives and restores. But there's all sorts of, how do we love people? How do, you know, we know that we should love. How does that love, how does that function? So we want to think about that in this short little passage. So a right view of prayer. Paul doesn't ask for release from affliction. He doesn't have a health list here. 
Paul's prayer points to who God is and what God is doing. So it helps us understand the nature of God. And the first thing that we learn about the nature of God from this prayer is that God is one. Now, this isn't as evident in our English text as it is in the Greek, but this passage, Greek kind of starts in a different word order, and it starts with the singular he in verse 11. And then what's even more interesting is that he, so he has this singular he in verse 11, and then as he goes on and he says, um, now may the Lord for direct our way to you, in the Greek, verbs have a tense. And so this direct is singular masculine. So one God, singular. Okay, God is one. But he exists in three persons. Now, the Trinity is not overflowing in this verse, but God's divinity and Jesus' divinity is. And there's multiple evidences of this in this passage. The first is that Paul speaks about Jesus or to Jesus in the same way he's speaking to God. If there's one God and you are praying, dear God, you know, bless this day, bless this food, heal us or whatever it is, then you would be praying to God. But he is praying to God and Jesus at the same time. He is praying to God and Jesus at the same time. Now, I remember one time in, a, in another church, and there was a song that we were singing that one of the, the older people didn't like, and uh, so we were having a conversation about it. And uh, it said in the song, Jesus, hear my prayer. Now, he said, I, we don't pray to Jesus, we pray to God. I said, we're splitting hairs here, aren't we? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I said, could it be the drums that you don't like in the song? <laughs> okay, let's talk about that then. But praying to, there's nothing wrong with praying to Jesus, correct? We see Paul doing that here. So Paul speaks to Jesus and God in the same way. Second, Paul adds even a title to Jesus. He says here, now may our God and Father, right, and our Lord Jesus. He gives a title to God and a title to Jesus. I'm just saying in hierarchy, you'd be very careful there. You wouldn't necessarily do that if you're trying to distinguish one over the other. Third, and here's the, there's the big one in here, and I, I just need to show it to you. In verse 13, he says, okay, so now may our God and Father and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he, who is the he referring to? Both. Both God and Jesus. He's using a singular he here. In fact, in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, um, Athanasius argued from this passage the deity of Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, that's the he. He's referring here to God and to Jesus. This has been one of the passages that people go to to say, look at Jesus' deity. So what? That's the theology. God is one and he exists in three persons. 
One of the things it teaches us about God is that he is relational. Uh, in a book that I'm reading uh, this, this week, The Relational Soul by Richard Plass and James Colfield, they say this, the Trinitarian God who lives in eternal relationship of love is the only God who is able to reweave the fabric of the human soul. Our relational God heals our wounds, not simply by decree, but by inviting us into a participatory life of communion with him. We are in relationship with a triune God who is healing us, not just of our relational, but our spiritual and our emotional problems. Sometimes we come to church and we go, I don't know, the Trinity, I don't even, I don't understand the Trinity. That's really hard. What do we do with all that? God is telling us something about himself that tells us about something about how we are to function and how we are to worship him. The other things that stands out in this passage is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. Now, may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Again, Paul has already said, I want to go, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered me. So who does Paul appeal to? God. God is sovereign over all that. In a, a right view of God recognizes that God is in control, but there's a battle going on. There's God's perfect will and there's Satan trying to thwart it. And so we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So we recognize that God is over that. In Psalm 16, or Proverbs 16, verse 1, it says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, also, he says uh, in this prayer, it's interesting the way that he words this in verse 12, and may the Lord, listen to that, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. There's a part in where our spiritual growth, God is doing it, and we're either cooperating with it or not cooperating with it. Okay, And so there is a both and in there. God is sovereign. We need to, to, to wrestle with that and, and walk along God's sovereignty. But God is doing something. He said, may, may God make you increase. So God is one. God exists in three persons. God is sovereign. And in this, and we've already kind of mentioned this, God is relational. God is a relational God. And it's not limited by ethnicity. He says, Paul, Jewish man, writing to Gentile Thessalonians, our God. And I know that's really simple stuff. But we need to grab a hold of that. He's our God. It's not white, it's not American, it's not Jewish, okay, it's our God, he's the God of the universe, of every nation and tongue, our God, 
going back to the Lord prayer, the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our, not my. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't teach us to pray singular. He teaches us to pray corporately. He's relational. And what God is doing in the bigger story of Scripture is that God plants man, Adam and Eve, in the garden, and he is walking with them and talking with them, and he is in relationship with them. And he says, look, you are going to go, and you're going to multiply, and you're going to increase, and you're going to cover the earth, and there's going to be this, implied in there is this relationship with God and man, and sin separates that. And God is in this process of restoring back to where we are in God's perfect relationship and presence. When you read the first two chapters, God is with man. The last two chapters of Revelation, again, God is present with his creation. I think that we, we don't think about being present with God. Um, see if I can find something real quick. The mind is working faster. Um, he says uh, in Psalm, I don't have it highlighted in this Bible. Talks about in the Psalms about, oh, in verse 11, you make known the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Where does joy come from? According to the psalmist, being in the presence of God. Well, you and I are struggling because that presence has been impacted by sin. Christ has restored our ability to have joy and presence with God again through his death and resurrection. And that is eventually going to be completely restored. And it's, it's pure in nature. Um, he says here... Um, um, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another uh, as for all of you, as we do, so that he may establish your hearts blameless before the Lord. Blameless, it's pure. So our God is one. Our God exists in three, in three persons. God is sovereign and God is relational. So that's the theology. What's the function of that? It impacts how we respond to God, how we respond to one another, uh, how we trust in God. Don't throw a pity party going, why am I here? We, we are supposed to. I didn't do a very good job. But what is it you're trying to teach me through this, God? What, how does this impact my relationship with you? What are you calling me to do? We don't doubt God's love and care for us. I have to doubt my reaction to when things don't go exactly the way I want them to go. God is still good. God is still seeking after us. God is still in control. God is still in relationship with us. Next, we want to understand the purpose of God. And Paul's prayer here is that the church would have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our God. How does, how does one become in that category where we can say together, our God. John writes in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who have received him. 
Have we come to a place where we've recognized our need for Jesus Christ? Where we have recognized that our sin, that all of us have, has separated us from God? Have we come to a point where we know we can't save ourselves? That Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died for our sins? that he shed his blood for us, that he conquered death and rose again. Have we come to the point where we have received him? Paul says another way, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Have we come to a place where we are relationally connected with the God of the universe through receiving Jesus Christ? By believing the story to such a point that the theology impacts the way that we function. Our God. I would say that in a room this size, there are some who have not made that decision to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been around for a long time. Maybe you've heard me say this many times. And one of the, the most embarrassing things you could think of was, is to admit, you know what? I don't think I've ever received him as Lord and Savior. I don't think I've ever confessed my need for him. I don't know that I've ever been baptized. I've shared this story before, but we had a, a pastor that we worked under for a while, and his wife's mom was a pastor's wife. Played the piano every Sunday morning, led worship. And one Sunday, an evangelist came to town and was preaching, and he's up on the pulpit, she's up there playing the piano, and he gave an altar call. And the pastor's wife got up from the piano and went forward. Man, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall that Sunday morning. But she was moved. She recognized that even though she was doing all the things, she hadn't received Jesus Christ. The mission of the church is to see that people become followers of Jesus Christ in relationship with him. Love God, love people, make disciples. Second, Paul wants to see that the church, that they are abounding in love for one another. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Now, we have said that Paul has three things in this book that he keeps kind of coming back to. It started in his prayer in chapter 1, where he says, verse 2, we give thanks to God always, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. What is it that you're mentioning? Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfast hope. When we get to chapter 2, um, he is mentioning three things as well. But those things are that you would increase in love. Okay, there's love again. Holiness replaces faith and hope of some things uh, that are to come. And so when you get back to that theology, function, devotion, our faith 
becomes our practice, our function. And specifically, Paul is calling for, first of all, an abounding of love for one another. Abounding. Not just that you kind of like each other. How does our love for one another increase and abound? Over time, hopefully. We talked about last Sunday that affection leads uh, is starts things. We go through afflictions together that binds us together, and then abandonment, giving of ourselves from last uh, Sunday's sermon. In chapter four, he is specifically going to say, then this is how you are to function. And he's going to talk about sexual purity, living quiet lives, minding your own business. That really helps you abound in love. In chapter five, living in, living in the light, not getting drunk. He's going to specifically say, here's some things that'll help your community of loving one another grow. It makes sense. So as we go through these Next few sermons, these are ways that we are going to grow and abound in our love for one another. Now notice he says in verse 12, look at it. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So there should be an increasing love for the lost as well. Um. Sometimes when we talk about love, love God, love uh, people, make disciples, um, we can emphasize one over the other. And so, uh, you know, sometimes I'll say, we really need to, to love our community. And then somebody will say, well, what about loving the people in our church? All right. And I'll say, how about we, we need to care for one another church? And somebody will say, what about loving people in our community? Yes. Yes, we're supposed to do all that. But I would say, this isn't a thus saith the Lord, just side note here, Dave's opinion. We do a pretty good job. We can do better. We do a really good job at caring for one another. There's some really good tight relationships, a lot of people caring, uh, helping out. Um, We don't have that big of a footprint in our community. So Rich has said, hey, What's a way that we can help show love our community? And he's got a sign-up sheet out there. We're going to help out. The community is serving food for kids who um, are missing out on, on uh, lunch at school. And they said, look, you guys can't come over here and you know, wear your church T-shirts and, and you know, start preaching, but you can come over and help. You can come play with the kids and love kids and just show that you care. So we are trying to love others. That's why we're doing that. So we want to, as a church, increase in the love for the lost. Now, that doesn't mean that we do that at the expense of loving one another. It means we do it in addition to. Notice when Rich was giving the announcements, he said, in hopefully you'll build relationships with somebody so that you can get a cup of coffee with them, invite them to a barbecue, and then maybe church. Sometimes we just go, man, I just want to get people into church. Got to get them into church. I'm telling you, if somebody hasn't been in church in a long time, church is weird. Okay, why don't you, why don't you invite them out for coffee? People do that. That's normal. 
Normal people do that. Come over to my house for a barbecue. That's still normal. In our culture, it's becoming increasingly weird, but it's normal. Look, that's why we have made one of our pathways hospitality. Why? Because we, we think that going from zero relationship to come to church is weird. You build a relationship with them. So that's part of our, our, our pathways, our mission here. So we need to have an increasing love for the lost. It was Jesus' mission. Luke 19.10 said, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Don't have to look that one up. Okay, that one is, that one is, is foundational in my head. Luke kind of just all of a sudden comes into modern American, what's, what's Jesus' vision plan for his ministry? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You are here this morning to one degree or another in a nation far away from where all this started because Jesus came to seek and save the lost and he made disciples who went out and sought the lost. That was his mission. And it's our mission. Matthew 28, go make disciples. The point of the Great Commission, it's so funny because I'm, I'm correcting myself here. I've always said there's one command in there. Make disciples. There's three verbs. Go, baptize, and teach. I was reading something uh, this week, and the guy says, there's two commands in the Great Commission. I'm like, what? No, one. I've taught this several times. There's two commands in the Great Commission. And, I, and we miss it. I don't want to read it to you, because I, I just this was new to, newer to me this week, or I'd forgotten it. Go therefore, make disciples. The command there is make disciples. Go and baptize and teach. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In the ESV, it says, and behold. Or in the King James, I think it says, and lo. It's actually a command. It's a command to remember. And keep this in mind. As you're doing that, I am with you always. Make disciples, remember I'm with you. Well, that's really helpful because the make disciples part is scary. The I am with you, lo, we don't say that anymore. And lo, I, and behold, think about this, remember, don't forget. It's, it was Jesus' mission, it's our mission. And it's also our ministry. I was thinking about this this week as we've been talking a lot about reconciliation and, uh, and those things. Um, and, and I just, as a pastor over the years, people have said, I'm trying to find my ministry, what my place is. And, and I get that. I mean, we all go through that. It's, it's good. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which we've looked at this verse, it's therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, right? Uh, make sure I'm in the right place. Um, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also by you. And um, um, Paul says uh, on later, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this from God, who through Christ reconciles us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
It's our ministry. It's our ministry. Here's the ministry God has given you to help reconcile people, specifically to God. Look, our world is becoming increasingly difficult to be a Christian. And instead of hiding in our churches and saying, oh, it's good to be together. Let's have a holy huddle. That's what the churches have called over there. We're just going to have a holy huddle here. Feels good. We have a mission. And it's to make disciples. We have a ministry and it's to reconcile others. And our love for lost people need to increase. We need to be reminded, look, there's lost people in your life who probably drive you crazy. There's, there's found people in your life that drive you crazy too. That's, another, that's for another sermon. But lost people, we just go, man, their life is so made, messed up and it, it, that mess is spilling out on me or their mess is spilling out on their yard, which we all have to look at, or their mess is spilling out into our community or whatever it is. And I just, I want to remind you of this. Lost people are not our enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And we need to love them. So the mission here, uh, the mission is a relational one, get people in relationship with Jesus Christ, abounding in love for one another, increasing in love for the lost, and then a steadfast heart. He says in here, increase and bound in love for one another and for all uh, as we do for you so that we may establish your, our hearts blameless in holiness. We need to establish our hearts. I want to just say that our hearts are being attacked all the time. We've already seen in last week's sermon that Satan is sometimes hindering us to do the things that we feel that God is calling us to do. And so we pray over them. We ask for God to intervene. We don't give up. We keep praying. But there are some things that you have faced this week where God has said, no, I I thought, man, this seems so, you're just in this, and this seems so clear. God has this door and this door, and I'm just going to walk right through it, and all of a sudden, God closes one of those doors, and you go, oh, man, I thought I was doing what God wanted me to do. And you keep praying. Keep praying. There are times when it seems like, at least in Thessalonica, where the world is attacking us physically. There is actual physical battles going on against God's people. Not as much in the United States, but it's increasingly becoming so. But the world is attacking our faith. You believe that? You really believe that God came in the person of Jesus Christ and he died for you? You believe that God created the world? You believe that God is going to return? You really believe that? Let me, let me just tell you, when people are asking you that, and what you hear them saying is, you believe those childhood fairy tales? What they might be asking, listen, what they might be asking is, do you really believe that? I need to know. Because I want something more. So yeah, people might be attacking our faith, but, but what Paul says, my prayer for you it's not that your wrist gets better or that you don't cut your fingers anymore, Dave. My, my prayer for you is that you would be established in your heart, that you would be steadfast in your faith. Our, our hearts are attacked by Satan, by the world, attacking us physically or our faith. 
And sometimes, unfortunately, the church turning on itself. We've said this around here, but man, the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. Come on, folks, look. We're all fallen. And we are being transformed through Jesus Christ. We want to encourage one another along that path, not make it harder for people. Look, Jesus didn't say go make people act and look just like you. That was, in case you, if you read that and what make disciples was, that's not what it is. Making disciples is helping people obey all that Jesus commanded, not that you commanded. Our hearts are attacked by the fallenness of this world. Sometimes, you know, it just, we live in a, in a time where we're just getting so bombarded. We're so knowledgeable of everything that's happening in the world that it's overwhelming. And sometimes something will happen in our world and somebody will say, how come you didn't mention that on Sunday morning? Because we, we are at a time in history where if I mentioned everything that happened this week that we need to pray about, that would be the sermon. And sometimes we just go, Maranatha, which is an old word that means, come, Lord, come. I mean, there's days when we look at our world and we just go, oh, man. I remember my mother-in-law being so stressed out about the world that her grandkids were growing up in. And I was young, I'm like, oh, come on. I am so stressed out about the world that my grandkids are growing up in. It's stressful. But I already know that it's fallen. And I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm to make disciples. I'm to love the lost. I'm to show my love for my, my family and, and people in my church family. And finally, we're to, to live an expectant life. We're going to talk more about this as we go into uh, chapter 4. But he says, establish your hearts in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. And Paul just throws in a little reminder of Jesus' coming. And I, I'll tell you again, right, I just keep coming back to this. And I, I have been trying to direct my prayers this way um, daily. But... Um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Man, it's just good to pray that sometimes. And I, I pray it this way when I'm praying that. I said, Lord, we're ready for your return. We want to see justice. We want to see things turned upside down. Lord, come. But I also say in that, Father, help me to live kingdom principles until you return. Help me to live the way I'm supposed to live. Your kingdom come in my life before it comes. We're to live an expectant life. How do we do that? Well, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We abound in our love for one another. We increase in our love for the lost. We have a steadfast heart. That's how we live an expectant life. It, living a life waiting for Christ's return is not just sitting in church singing, uh, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. What's the other one I, I'm thinking of? Uh, <laughs> oh, what's, what's the old, uh, I'll fly away, yeah, right? Remember, <laughs> 
We changed the words around here. So some of you haven't been around here, but uh, it's a popular song. We haven't sang it in a while, but I'll fly away. Uh, Mark and I were talking about it one time, and I said, well, I don't really like this song. It's kind of like, this world is really lousy. I'll fly away someday, right? And he said, what, what are we supposed to do now? So Mark added a song about how we're supposed to, uh, a, a line about how we're supposed to live now. But that's not the idea of expectant living, like, beam me up, Lord. That's not the point. Expectant living is this. Ordinary people going through much affliction can do so with joy and they can have a contagious faith because they believe that God is returning. That's what keeps us going. Like I can do this a little bit longer because God is coming. I can do this a little bit longer because I believe he's in control. I can keep pressing on because I know that God is relational. I can keep going because I know God saved me. And one day, he's going to wipe away those tears. That's an expectant life. So what's the application and action? I would encourage all of us to focus our prayers more on the nature and purpose of God and less on our physical needs of the day. If we prayed more about our growing in love, if we prayed more that, that you and I would, would have a greater love for the lost, if we prayed more about God making our heart holy and steadfast than we did about all the things that are ailing us that day, it might really change our focus. There are some things that are hindering you in your life. I don't know what they are, but... The pattern of scripture is that you have a road that you're on and Satan is hindering you. And so pray that God would move those hindrances from your life. Some of them are obvious. Some of them come in a, in a much more difficult way because the hindrance is something in ourselves that we don't want to identify, that we don't want to change. And then... I, my hope and my prayer, and as long as I have breath, my emphasis is that Hillsborough First Baptist Church would grow in its love for lost people. Now, I'm not saying that we should do it at the expense of, of loving one another. I'm saying that we should, in addition, grow in our love for the lost. And I want to be specific with that. We need to grow in our love for lost people that are around us. In our communities. In our workplaces. In our schools. Not at the expense of loving lost people, that, missionaries that we support. Not at that expense. But if we don't make disciples here, how effective can we be making disciples somewhere else? Um, you know, there was a time when people thought, hey, we're doing pretty good in America. Let's send missionaries other places. Uh, guess what? We're not doing so good here. And so let's not throw in the towel. Let's grow in our love for lost people and make disciples right here.
I believe God is calling us to do that. And uh, while I'm still here, I will emphasize that. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Uh, Thank you for this prayer that uh, Paul lays before us. Thank you for this church and everybody that's here this morning. Father, help us to have more of a focus on your nature and purpose. Help us to have a growing love for lost people around us. Help us to see them uh, for uh, who they are. They're just like us. And uh, without the grace of God that somebody told us, uh, we would be in the same place. So Lord, help us to love people, uh, to build relationships with them, to share the love of Christ. And help us to grow in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.